Um, for those of you um, who came in maybe a little late, my name is Ken. It's a, it's a joy to be here. This has been such a delightful visit. I am, um, I am so encouraged by how I see the Lord at work here in restoration. Um, I, I completely delight in Rick and Molly and their family and the team here that you have leading. So it's been a, just a really beautiful time. We are, as Aaron said in the beginning, um, we are in this season of Advent. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And the word Advent literally just means coming. But contrary to what we see in the world around us, this is not about His first coming. This is not, Advent's not about um, His incarnation through the Virgin Mary a couple thousand years ago. Advent is actually about His second coming. That we are to be a people who are shaped and shrouded in and shaped by the truth of what will be when He returns. That there will be a, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Which means that we are to be a people of hope. Now, Hope, biblically, is different than how we think of hope. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm hoping for something, it's like a remote possibility that maybe will come true. Hope is a certainty, biblically. This is what will happen. But it's not just a certainty of what will be. We actually get to experience some of that now. It's not all in the future. We have foretaste of it. We get to experience the things that we hope for even now in our day, which is important for us to know. One of the things that you look at in the season of Advent is it's the theme of light in the darkness. Now, this is actually what it means to be a people of hope, that we see there's light in the darkness. Advent is not the time that we pretend that things aren't dark. We actually face into it. We recognize that there is darkness, but that darkness doesn't define us, and that darkness is not the whole story. There is light. It's for us, it's in us, and it is also through us. That we see this, the glory of the light of the, of the world breaking into the world, breaking into this darkness. Advent, um, again, as Aaron said, he said, Happy New Year. You're like, what is this? Um, it is the beginning of the church calendar. So this marks the beginning of the church year. And, and I love that we begin with the end in mind. That we are shaped from the beginning of the church year, knowing what will be. Which actually means that we are to be a people who are relentlessly a people of hope. A people of expectancy and a people of wonder. We're going to begin in Isaiah 64, in verse 1. The prophet Isaiah says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. Isaiah is crying out to God, and he's looking at the world around him. He's saying all that is wrong, all the corruption, all the evil, all the unfaithfulness. He says, God, would you just rend the heavens and come? We need you to come set things right. All is wrong. We need you to come and set things right. Do you know that cry? Have you, have you heard that? Have you felt that? That place of, of recognizing that there are things wrong and, and just rises up. Lord, I need you to come and set things right. Places where we look and we see maybe injustice or oppression or we see division or there's abuse or there's, there's some suffering, there's sickness. And these are realities that we actually spend a lot of energy trying to insulate ourselves from those. Right, to try to pretend that these things aren't there, to try to distance our, ourselves from those realities. But the reality is that for each one of us, no matter how good we tend to distance and pretend, uh, no matter how good our insulation is against these things, there are times that we can't escape it. We, we, are, we are cut to the heart. We're, we feel it in our gut, that place of, of things are not right. 
God, we need you to come and make things right. Would you set things right? Because I have no ability to do this. You alone are the one who can fix this. This is what Isaiah is calling out. Lord, rend the heavens. Come now. Set things right. This is an Advent cry. Isaiah is, is actually, he's, he's calling for God to come and move in, in judgment day. The day that, that we would see in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 is called the day of redemption. Or Jesus in Matthew 19 and 28 calls it the day of the renewal of all things. And what you see in Revelation 21 and verse 5, and it says, And him who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is an Advent cry. And, and what you find that Isaiah knows what he is doing, and he says, Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? He knows that he is actually asking for God to come and bring judgment. This is why you find in verse 2, he's basically saying, Lord, I want your enemies to tremble in holy, at your holiness and at your power. I want them to, to fall on their knees and tremble because of your might and your majesty. And then verse 3, he reminds the Lord, listen, you've done this before. You have come and intervened before. When we weren't even asking you to do it, we weren't even expecting you to do it, you have done this. And then in verse 4, he, he says, God, there is no other God like you. You alone can set things right. The, the gods of the nations around, the idols that they have, they can do nothing to make things right. You alone can set right all that is set wrong. You are mighty. You are sovereign. You are the God who acts on our behalf which is different from the, the gods of the, of the countries around them because the gods of, of the ancient Near East pagan religions, they weren't acting on behalf of the people who worshipped them. They were seeing what they could get from the people who worshipped them. And so he's saying, no, you're not like these gods, uh, these, these false gods, these idols, that it's all about what, what, what they can get from us. You are the God who acts on our behalf. You are the one who actually does things for our benefit. You alone are the only one who can do this, who's the only one who can set things right. Isaiah is laying out his case. He's saying, this, things are bad. And he, he lays out his case, and part of that case is, and you alone can fix it. And so, like, come do this now. We, we need you to come and set things right now. Do you know that cry? Have you felt that? The interesting thing is in verse 5, the tone completely changes. It's actually a, a difficult verse um, to, to translate, to understand, but, but literally it says, the first part is, you meet the one who rejoices and does righteousness, who in all their ways remember you. So he's, he is saying that there is this place that you are the one who, 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 you are the one who meets those who, who are righteous, who, who rejoice in righteousness, who in all the ways, in everything they do, their lives are marked by being faithful to you. And then he says, basically, and that's not us. That's not us. We don't continually remember you. We are not those who do righteousness. He says, and, and therefore you are angry because we sin against you continually. So Isaiah, he moves from this place of looking at all that's wrong that's out there to recognizing, oh, there's actually something wrong in here. It, recognizing that, that he is asking God to bring judgment of all that is not right. And then he comes to the place of realizing, oh, that's me. I'm not right. I'm asking for God to judge everything that's not right. I have to recognize that I'm not right. 
It is so easy to focus our energy and attention to all that is not right out there. Right? To be those who are condemning all that is not right out there because that actually allows us to never face into what is not right in here. Now, what is amazing in this verse is that actually you find the gospel in this verse. This last phrase, uh, most often it's translated, how then can we be saved? But there is not a question in this. They're adding words and making this a question. Literally, it says, and we were saved. We did not do right. We continually sin against you, enough to anger you, and we were saved. You rescue us, not because we're good, not because we earn it or deserve it. We can't. We are continually doing things against you, and yet we were saved. And Isaiah, and calling for God to set things right and calling for judgment, he comes face to face with the grace and mercy of God, recognizing I'm not good enough, I'm not right, I can't be good enough, that this rescue is a gift of grace. It is simply something that we receive. Verse 6, he even develops it uh, further. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. He is saying that, that even our good deeds, even the good things that we do, the, the things we do to try to be faithful, try to be righteous, compared to your purity, compared to your holiness, they're filthy. Right? They're, they, they're not good. Now, um, this, this is not saying that we can't do good things. Right? This, is, this is recognizing that we are those who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which means that we have a capacity for good, right? And that capacity for good, another way of saying is we can be those who promote life, who create beauty. We have a capacity to do good things. We also have a capacity for evil, right? To destroy life, to corrupt beauty. And what he's saying is that even our good things, even the things that we do that are good, that promote life, that create beauty, even those things are tainted by our sin, so yes, we can do good things, but it is never going to be enough. And in verse 7, he is basically saying that, that we can't come to you in our own strength. It's not by our own initiative. It's not that, that we seek God, and if we seek God enough, we're going to find Him. He says nobody seeks God. Right? It's what Jesus says in John 3, we hate the light. That this is not something that we do by our own strength or by our own initiative. We don't have that ability. We need to be rescued. And then you find then in verse 8, this is actually a, a, a beautiful, encouraging verse. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Now in this, he's not speaking about our creation as people. When he's saying that we are the clay, you are the potter, he's saying that this is about who you have rescued and formed us to be as the people of God. So he's saying that you are the one who made us, you are the one who created us, you have formed us, you've called us to be the people of God. And on that basis, I'm asking, would you please forgive us? Would you bring restoration? Would you bring your blessing? Not because we deserve it, but because of your mercy. Not because that we can do right things and therefore we earn your forgiveness and your mercy. Uh, we, uh, we actually 
can't earn, right? We are those who continually sin against you. Uh, There is this place of saying, um, Father, I need you to rescue us, not because I deserve it, but simply because of this. I belong to you. You're the Father. You're the one who made me part of the people of God. So Isaiah is being overwhelmed, certainly overwhelmed by his sinfulness. He sees that. He says, everything I do is like filthy rags. He's, he's overwhelmed by his sinfulness. But he is even more overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God. This is, a, this is an Advent kind of reality. This is something that we need to um, actually understand and, and, and step into, that, that we are actually to be those who, yes, we're aware of our sinfulness, we're aware of our need for God, but we are not to be those who are overwhelmed by our sin. We're overwhelmed by the grace and love and mercy of God that rescues us. Right? That's what overwhelms us. That's what shapes us. That is what enables us to be a people of hope, to, to rest in, in the goodness and the glory of God. This is actually what enables us to not be a people marked by resignation. Also to not be a people marked by self-righteousness and condemning others without any sense of compassion. This is what enables us to be anchored in hope, enables us to be those who can give thanks and and see and have a sense of wonder at God's goodness even in the midst of the darkness. We recognize, we see His grace and His goodness even in the midst. This is actually what it means to be ready. In the Gospel reading today, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus says, Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's unfortunate that these words are, are they, they give the wrong connotation. It's uh, be on guard or sort of notice, look, see, don't be asleep. This is not Jesus saying, you don't know when I'm coming, so be anxious. Just be filled with anxiety so that you do right things. That is not what is happening here. In fact, he is saying that this is actually bathed in the mercy of God. He is calling us to not fall asleep, to not be lulled into the things of the world, to see the world, to see everything differently. He's not saying anxiously trying to calculate and figure out when the last days are. Nobody knows. A thief in the night. Only the Father in heaven knows. He's saying that, that actually we are called to not see the world the way that, that everybody else sees the world. That we are not to see the world through the lens of diminishment. Right? Through the lens of, of what is missing. Through the lens of, of what is lacking. Now, in order to understand why that's true, we, we have to go back just briefly to the beginning. In the beginning, we were made in the image of God. It's probably better to say we were made as the image of God. We were meant to be His presence and His glory in creation. That's why Psalm 8 says that we are crowned with glory and honor. But you know the story in Genesis 3, we rebelled against God. And in that, the image of God that we were created now becomes marred by sin. We still bear the image of God. Every person bears something of the image of God, but it's the image of God that has now been tainted by sin. Genesis 5 lays this out. It says that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They gave birth to their son, Seth, in the image of Adam. 
The image of Adam is the image of God that's been corrupted or tainted by sin. Paul picks up this imagery in in Romans chapter 5. And so what happens in our rebellion is that we actually lose who we are. And we lose the way to know who we are. Because our identity and our worth is not something that we create. We don't have the ability to create it. Our identity and worth is actually something we receive. It's, it's something that the Father gives us. He speaks to who we are. He's the one that gives us value and worth and identity. But in our rebellion, we lose that. And we lose the way to know who we are because our sin breaks our relationship with God. And therefore, because we are those who have lost who we are, we think that we have to establish who we are by our works, by the things that we do. And in our day, it's, it's even worse. We place on people in our culture a burden they cannot carry. You get to decide who you are. It's up to you to to determine your identity. It's up to you to determine the value and the worth that you have and to protect it and to uphold it and to make sure that it never goes away. Why do you think there's so much despair and anxiety? That is something that we weren't meant to do. We aren't meant to bear and carry that responsibility. So in Genesis 3, we go from being those who are crowned with glory and honor to being those who are now actually crowned with guilt and shame. And we spend our lives trying to recover what was lost, trying to establish some sense of identity, grasping for something that makes me feel that I matter, that I actually have value, that I, that I have a place in this world, that there's something about me that actually is glorious and worthwhile. We actually spend our lives grasping, which means that the fundamental way that we view the world is through the lens of diminishment. What is lacking? What's wrong with me? Advertisers know this, don't they? That's what they appeal to. Here's what's wrong with you. Buy this, 1999, and you will be glorious. Right? That's the promise. They know that we spend our lives grasping, trying to regain what has been lost. When we see all through the lens of shame, which is really what that diminishment is. It's the lens of shame. We spend our lives bouncing between uh, grasping and resignation. And then we grasp, and then it's like this doesn't work, and we hit resignation. And then what do we do? Well, I just need to grasp differently or grasp more or try something. I need you to tell me that I'm okay so I can feel good about myself. We have this lens of diminishment, this lens of grasping, trying to recover what is lost. And the reality is, when that is our world, how we live in this world is actually looking at what does the world have for me? That's how we live in our relationships. What do you have for me? Instead of living with the grace of saying, oh, I actually have something to give to you. I don't need something from you. I have something to give to you. See, this call that we have is a call to live differently, to see differently, to not be lulled into that place of diminishment, but to be awake, awake to who God is and what He has done for us. It's actually, if you you look at the next verse in verse 34, it's an amazing verse. He said, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each of them assigned a task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. He leaves his servants in charge. 
Do you hear that? He gives them authority. That is not the lens of shame or diminishment. He actually gives his servants authority. Not only does he give them authority, that, that he, he gives them things to do that fit who they are. Do you hear the expansiveness of that? He gives them work to do that fits who they are. He gives them authority. He gives them a purpose. And then they have the ability to live that out. When you, when you put this together with the, the call to, to notice, to see differently, to not fall asleep, now what we are seeing is this expansiveness that, that the Father gives us authority. He gives us a purpose that actually fits who we are. And so the call to not be lulled asleep, to, to, to see the world differently, he's actually saying, you need to take your place in the kingdom of God. There is something that I have given you to do. You have an authority for something, and I've given you something to do that fits who you are. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is nobody whose gifts don't matter. But there is nobody who is less than, who doesn't have, uh, that God hasn't actually created you and given you a way to manifest His glory and His kingdom through who He's made you to be. It fits who you are. There's a, a grace and an expansiveness in this, which means that if we understand this, that we are not those who are marked by futility. Right? We're not those who are weighed down thinking of, of all the things that I do wrong or are wishing, I wish I were more like Molly so I could do better things. Like, no, look at what God has gifted me to be and to do. Right? There's, a, there's this freedom and an expansiveness that we are called into that we look differently, not only at the world around us, but we actually see ourselves differently as well. There's an authority and, and there is a, a freedom and a purpose that He has given us that fits actually who we are. And we still live in a fallen world, right? So there's going to be frustration. I'm not telling you there won't be. There's going to be struggle, there's going to be failure, there's going to be sin in us and around us. But those things don't form the lens that we have, right? That we don't look at ourselves or the world around us through that lens of diminishment or that lens of darkness. That's not how we're called to see. The lens that we are called to have is the lens of looking at Jesus and His glory, the one who is and was and will be again, right? He is coming, and He is coming to set all things right. That is the lens, and that lens is actually seeing the glory of what He has done for us. God Himself dying for us that we might be restored, that we could be made the beloved children of God, that there is a glory that He has for us, that we become sons and daughters of the King of Kings, that we are actually meant to be those who bring His glory into this world through who we are and through what He's given us to do. This place of living out more fully who Jesus has made us to be. That is standing in the authority He gives us with grace and mercy and faithfulness. That is, that is the Advent call for us. So we are not to see the world the way that everybody else sees the world. So yes, we can see chaos, we can see injustice, we can see things that are wrong. But actually, in the midst of that, we are those who have hope. Right? We know the hope. We see things differently. We know that God is actually still at work. 
And He is moving all things towards the restoration of all things. It also means that we don't see other people the way that others look at people. You know, the, the basic way that our world looks at people and trains us to is that you have value by what you can do for me. You have value by how important your job is. So in the world, a doctor has more value than a garbage collector. Not in the kingdom of God. We don't look at others the way that the world, we don't regard them from a worldly point of view of, of how can you make me feel good about me or what can you do for me or who has the most value in my circle of friends so I can feel good because my friend is an important person. That is the way the world looks. Everybody you meet is either a child of God or a potential child of God. That's how we're to see people. Right, that we actually see people, uh, we see that we are meant to call forth their glory. That they could be restored. And if they have been restored, that, that we can be those who come alongside and help them to step into what it means to be a people who have experienced restoration. And therefore we bring that restoration everywhere we go and everything that we do. That we are a kingdom presence. That our basic way of looking is not, can, not what I can get, but I have something to give. But we're not doing this on our own. It's not in our own strength. I'm just going to go real briefly um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which you read this morning, verse 7. Paul writes, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So, so he's actually saying we're waiting for Jesus to come again, the second coming. He says, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you wait. Now, I don't know about you, but like just sitting around waiting doesn't, you don't need gifts, right? Waiting is not sitting back and doing nothing. Waiting is engaging in his work of restoration, living out who he's made us to be. He's saying, in that work, you lack nothing. This is not the lens of diminishment. What's wrong with me? What am I missing? You lack no spiritual gift as you are in this place of waiting, equipped and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. But not just that we're equipped by the Holy Spirit. What you find here is what you find in Philippians 1, 6, that what God begins, He will finish. The work He begins, He will always bring to completion. I love how Paul says it here. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the day he returns. God is faithful. Who, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Saying he is the one that's going to keep you strong. He is the one that actually makes you blameless on that day when Jesus comes back. That's why we're not called to live with anxiety. Right? It's because of his faithfulness. It's because of his grace. That his mercy is greater than our rebellion. What he begins, he always finishes. Think of it this way. Jesus' last words on the cross, it is finished. My work is completed. It is finished. He doesn't say it's mostly done. I've given you a good start. Don't blow it. It's finished. 
the finished work of the cross applied into the lives of those he rescues. It's this understanding that what he begins, he always brings to completion. And that's on a number of levels. Part of it is, is understanding that's true for everybody he rescues. The work he began, he will bring it to completion. If he's rescued us, he will glorify us. Right? That is his work, his grace working in our lives. But it's not just the individual nature. It's actually our corporate nature, who we are as a church. Right, that the good work that God has begun in restoration uh, in Minneapolis, He will bring that to completion. He will keep you strong to the end. That, that there is nothing wasted in the kingdom of God. That you're not here by accident. That God has brought you together to be His kingdom restoration presence. And it's not just individual, it's not just corporately. It's actually looking at all of creation. That there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Where there is no more sin or sorrow or suffering or sickness. Because He is faithful. His grace and His faithfulness enables us to walk more fully into who He has made us to be. Right? Because if we understand the fullness of what He has done, we're not self-conscious. We're not worrying about what other people think about us and are they going to affirm us so I know I have value or worth in this world. We know that we have a greater value than this world could ever give. We're not self-conscious, which means we can be those who are looking at others. Right, seeing how God calls us to be a kingdom presence. And, and this understanding that, that we are to step into what he has done. It's actually what you find in verse 2 to the church of God in Corinth. Those made holy, sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy. So you've been made holy. If you've been rescued, you've been made holy. Full stop, done deal. Now live into it. You're also called to be holy. You're called to live into what he has done. Called to live out what Jesus has done for you. It's this understanding that, that sin dehumanizes us. So the call to holiness is actually the call to be more human. To be more fully who God has intended and rescued you to be. It's not a strict list of do's and don'ts. It's being who God's made you to be. Stepping in to what He has done for you. So all is not right in the world. Things are not as they should be. And our response is not to be anxious. It's not to be resigned. It's not to have a lens of diminishment. Our response to things not being right is to take our place in the kingdom of God. Recognize what He has done in rescuing us and know that, that He is the one who equips us and empowers us to be His kingdom presence. That we don't see the world through the lens of diminishment or, or what is lacking or what is missing. We see the, lens, the world through the lens of His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness. Knowing that He empowers us by His Holy Spirit to be His presence in the world and to bring His restoration into this world. I'm using that word restoration a lot on purpose, by the way. <laughs> this is actually what confirmation's about. We're getting ready to come into confirmation. This is an ordination service. I want you to be clear. This is not about those who are here confirming what they believe about God. This is about God confirming what He thinks about them. This is about God confirming who they are and then in that confirming who He has made them to be and what He's given them to do. To be a kingdom presence. To be those who bring that restoration. Not out of a sense of burden, right? But, but out of a sense of joy that we get to participate in His work of restoration. 
And that call, it always begins with the seeing His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness. So we would step into His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness, being bathed and soaked in His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness so that we will step out marked by His grace and mercy and faithfulness, which means that we step out as those who pursue prodigal sons and daughters, that they could come home. (laughs) They have a place at this table. We want to see them come to the feast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the one who rescues us, that you are the one who alone can set all things right, not just in the world around, but actually in us. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would shape us to be a people of hope, relentlessly hopeful that we would not see ourselves or others of the world around us through the lens of diminishment, what is lacking, what is wrong, but we would see through the lens of your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. Father, would you empower us to take our place in the kingdom of God, to know the joy of being a part of your work of restoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.